go there, you'll never return. Say goodbye to all that you know. Join the pigs on Hillsborough Road. Are you going? Hey, everybody! To right now, you are listening to the official theme song for our upcoming '80s throwback slasher. Hillsborough Road. If you want to download the song, all you got to do is go to Hillsborough Road, the movie, dot me, and download a free copy of the song. All right, let's start the show. Everybody, and welcome to the Something Something podcast. My name is Eric Kasloff, and with me, as always, is Larry Sands. How's it going, Larry? Good, Eric. How are you doing, man? Doing quite Fine, my friend. Um, what you were just hearing at the beginning of the show is the theme song for if you're a new listener or if you're an old, if you're an old listener, you're sick of us saying this. <laughs> if you're a new listener, this is new to you. Me and Larry are making a movie. It is Woo. our 1980s throwback slasher movie. I mean, it's pretty much what the show's been about all year, the opening few minutes, every show we do, and we do a lot of them. You can get your your Hillsborough Road theme by going to hillsboroughroadthemovie.me. If you're listening in on Anchor, the link will be in the description of this episode. But yeah, man, that's pretty much all we got going on. We are still in the promotional stage. There are about 27 days left on the Indiegogo. So we're doing a big push for that right now. You can hear us on a bunch of other podcasts right now, right, Larry? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely for sure. The Horror Dads, the Rude Podcast, uh, Horror Slumber Party. Um and uh we're about to do uh we love horror uh in a couple days so we've got yeah. you know eric i i must say we've been doing pretty well for ourselves you know um we're getting our we're getting ourselves out there getting our indiegogo out there which by the way we've raised almost up to $3500 which for a horror movie and for an independent horror movie that it's amazing but we're still mm-hmm. putting the push on we're coming up to the end. And I want to point out we're a true indie horror movie because you hear that term indie movie and it's like, you know, Fox Searchlight. Right. Oh, you, you mean the one that the, the company that's owned by Disney now that them that that indie movie or, you know, we're making an indie movie. Oh, what was your budget? Five million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. what how much easier this would be if we just had five million dollars to start with? That would be so odd. And it's something you know, obviously, when when you're in the middle of being an independent filmmaker or independent creative, you know, you you can't really think outside your scope, but it is Eric, the day is coming when we're gonna have millions of dollars in a budget. To be able to pay everybody that we've ever talked to about, you know, working with us. And and actually, we should say this. So as of today, as of our podcast right now, we have 
should we tell everybody an announcement our music because we we're, we're we have a band should yeah, we tell everybody much, it's all pretty much confirmed so yes. it's just we just yeah. have to make the announcement so let's make the announcement excellent excellent um we eric and i uh we how how can i start this at the very start of when we put out eric when you put out that we were doing um uh our movie our 80s movie right even before we, the indiegogo was up i mean i just made the announcement on backstage and pretty much this really cool um rock band from italy from us italy up. that's awesome we, this is a worldwide uh it's a worldwide production because we have a band uh not only a rock band but a rock band from italy they were interested they reached out to us and it's pretty much we're going to solidify everything tomorrow um or you know, whenever you hear this, we've already solidified. But yeah, we we're gonna have our own theme song, our own rock theme song, our '80s rock theme song. It's awesome. I mean, yeah, I am ridiculously happy about that. Um, and you know, we're getting near the end of the year, so we we'll, we will be doing our year end wrap up show pretty soon. And again. Since we do so many podcasts, each individual show will probably have a year-end wrap-up. And we might do like a, I guess a Christmas party would be the best way to put it, of everybody from the other shows on. Yeah, yeah. So, Larry, one show that I don't like calling it a show, because I remember you, we had that classic conversation of... You know, I think the um some the not your average Christian podcast maybe it runs a little long, and I just was it not even a beat. I went, Larry, this is a ministry, not That's a right. podcast. That's right. That's and, right. You know, we, we tell this story a lot, but I remember Micah, you know, our great friend who's been on every podcast we have, thought that we met at a film event. What, oh, me and you? Yeah. yeah, she thought that was our backstory. But, you know, most people don't know our origin story is yeah. we were both attending the very same church in Los Angeles. And we met when we were you were acting in a play, the yeah. Easter play. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I, for some reason, I was in the choir, even though I can't sing <laughs> if my life depended on it. But that's where they threw me in. And, you know, that's really where our friendship started. So yeah. our friendship, the bedrock of it, again, most people would think it's movies. But no, it was our shared faith. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is really cool. And it's kind of evolved as we've kind of, you know, we, we reconnected just really quick before we get into our guest. We reconnected because you had just won um uh i think an award or it was your very first my first uh, film festival yeah your very first film festival for her name was samantha and you know we got hooked back up by our really good friend who also we met at church now Um, we didn't like completely stop talking i don't want like 
We no. talk very sporadically. Very sporadic. Because when you move away, and you know, that's that's the one thing, especially with creative people. Um, and obviously, you know, before we became filmmakers, like we were friends and we we reconnected really and started to talk every week, almost every day, because we started our podcast, yeah. right? Our early beginnings. And, and it's really evolved into what you hear now. Um, we're really pushing hard with our filmmaking side, which is great, and our podcast at the same time, which equally are, are blowing up. Because, Eric, we've had some really great guests on. Um, yes, we have. I mean, you know, you, you'll hear us in the wrap-up show, but every guest we have had on is has been a major influence creatively in my life because I can I, I love talking to the our guests because they're so creative and they have a power they have this drive inside wow. them to to do their thing and and I'd say that uh, Eric would you like to introduce our guests this week um, I'm, um, we have a very, very awesome person on the show who wrote a very interesting book about um, a, a controversial figure for some people, Ellen G. White. Um, we have uh, Pastor Steve. How's it going, Pastor? Hi, Good. Pastor. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Um. So you heard heard our little monologue talking, and um, uh, I love when we have guests on that have written a book, have done a movie, have created a song and put it out. Um, and I, equally, I love to talk to our guests to find out um, why they created their their piece of art, which, by the way, is is your book. Um, so if you can tell us about your book and what it's about. And also I, I should point out that the the psychobiography, could you explain a little bit about what psychobiography is as well? Sure. Sure. Psychobiography is a whole field of literature that's been growing in popularity a lot. And what it does is it combines the fields of history and psychology. And uh, I'm a historian as well. And so it's been a natural venue for me to work in. Um, there's never been a psychobiography on Ellen White before. So this is a new territory. And I find her to be just a, a fascinating character. I've, I've read a lot of psychobiography. And there's never been one more fascinating to me than Ellen. Um, but basically, I, I, the book is very heavily documented. There's 60, you know, pages of endnotes and historical documentation. So, um, the psychology part uh, is I'm a licensed psychologist, and and I basically go through the historical documentation. But I, it's written in a very popular style. It's not highly academic or that kind of thing. Uh, so I think, you know, the average person reading it will find it quite interesting. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't try to analyze her psychologically as if she were a patient or client. But um, 
I, I just look at the historical evidence and then I give the reader the opportunity to evaluate that in the light of the psychological um, options there are. And, um, you know, there are a lot of psychological options in her case. There's uh, 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 actually an amazing amount of pathology, if you will. But um, I didn't always understand that. You know, I was an Adventist pastor for 35 years. And uh, I've written like 27 books before this. So what really drove me to write this book was over the last 10 years, uh, if you've ever heard of WikiLeaks, you know who Julian Assange is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there, there was a person in the White Estate who uh, leaked out the most damning stuff about Ellen that researchers weren't even allowed to see. So when I went into the vaults and studied all the years before, I, I wrote doctoral dissertations on Adventism and Ellen White and all this, but I was never allowed to see like her personal diaries and things that were hidden from researchers and someone on the inside published all this stuff with the documentation on the internet and <laughs> so Whoa. the one had no choice but to release it you know because it was out there and it was undeniable now but but there was a lot of stuff there that made me realize hey this woman was really over the top you know uh, the uh <laughs> The stuff that came out there was, and it wasn't like I didn't know about the plagiarism and all the other things before, but when this stuff came out that she was an alcoholic and, you know, just she she had been so strong in her condemnations of the very thing she was doing and, and claiming she got it all from God, that it became, uh, and, and the things she attributed to God, you know, that God hates children and all kinds of things that came out, um, I realized I had to write a book that would really include this other material, and uh, that's it's all included in this psychobiography. So now, Pastor, for our listeners who might not know what a Seventh-day Adventist is or who Ellen G. White is, can you give us like a brief, you know, like a an elevator pitch on yeah, who she is. Nutshell would be Seventh uh, Adventist came into existence in the middle of the 19th century, shortly after Mormonism, okay. and uh, it all started with William Miller, who predicted the end of the world. I don't know if you've heard of the Millerite movement. Oh and, yeah, the Great he, Misunderstanding or right. the Great something like that, right? Movement. Uh, first October 22, 1843, he predicted the end of the world and had a large following, and that even grew the next year when he was m- mistaken. Uh, he re-figured uh, you know, it to be October 22, 1844, mm-hmm. and it was a huge movement in New England, and Ellen White and her family were part of it, except for her twin sister, who had nothing to do with it. But um, anyway, when that date passed, um, you know, the Millerites really fell into three categories. There were those who were totally embarrassed and humiliated because they'd been ridiculed. And, you know, they were so certain this was going to be right that now they were ashamed and, and just unbelievably disappointed. And they just dissipated and had nothing to do with it. 
Then there was another fairly significant group that kept following William Miller, even though he admitted he was wrong and it was a mistake to set the date and all that. And then you had an even smaller group who insisted that the date was right. Uh, and, and Christ was coming back very soon, but this was like a test. He had closed probation. No one could be saved except those who had believed this message. Mm-hmm. And this was the group that would form the Seventh-day Adventist Church about 16 years later. But they started out um, mainly following Ellen White, because as a 17-year-old, she claimed to have a vision from God showing that all this stuff uh, was God's will and purpose and probation had closed for everyone in the world except for them. And, and this little group, you know, less than 100 people, really bought into this. And uh, they came to accept her as the voice of God, basically. Mm. And that, that little tiny group ended up growing into 20 million people today in the world, if you can believe that. It's, it's larger than the Mormon church. But... Yeah. Um, but it's not as well known as the Mormon church, like a regular lay person who, sure. you know, even like a non-Christian, you know, like an atheist or a Gnostic knows who the Mormons are. Right. You know, they're much more well known. Why do you think the Adventists aren't, there's more than, you know, Mormons, but why aren't they more known in the mainstream? For several reasons, one one of which is that you've got Brigham Young University, a famous football team. You know they're they're very well known for Brigham Young. They they put all their eggs in one basket, which is this one big huge university, and uh, it's quite a famous university. And uh, you know because they've excelled in sports and that kind of thing, they're known for that. Joseph Smith was such a colorful character. He was a con artist and a fraud himself, but he was such a colorful figure that he's gotten a lot more attention in writing and stuff than Ellen White has as far as books written about him, psychobiographies written about him. Um, The other thing is Mormons are much larger in the United States. Um, You know, there are three, about three, four times the size of Adventists in the United States. But Adventists are much larger than Mormons in the rest of the world. Adventists have had this, you often think of the Mormons having this great missionary overseas thing because they send their missionaries out by twos. But Adventists have actually even had a more uh, extremely effective world mission program so that only about a million of the Adventists are in the United States, but 19 million are in other countries. Where in Mormonism, uh, the United States is by far their largest. They still are about 16 million worldwide, but the United States is where they're best known and they have their largest um, group. And, and of course, Brigham Young is their mecca. And uh, yeah. Loma Linda is kind of the mecca of Adventists. And Loma mm-hmm. Linda University is you know, the most famous thing for Adventists but it still doesn't compare to Mormonism. Okay, now one last question with the comparisons to Mormonism. Now, I'll admit, 
I'm much more knowledgeable about the Mormons than I am the Adventists. Mm -hmm. Now, I know with the Mormons, again, they're a lot of fun to talk about. Their beliefs are like, whoa, man, really? Now, I know with them, they'll claim the Bible is their authority, but when you know, you know it's fourth on the list. It goes... Book of Mormons, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, then maybe, maybe the Bible, but only the Joseph Smith King James Bible. Do the Adventists, are there other books that they hold more to, or is it Bible but? Adventists would never claim that their Ellen White's books are more important than the Bible. But the reality and truth are that they are. Um, you know, I, I show in my book that there's not a single doctrine that Adventists believe that they don't believe uh, except by Ellen White. Ellen White is the reason that Adventists believe every single doctrine that they hold to. And, and let me just give an example. Like take the Sabbath. That's Seventh-day Sabbath is by far the most famous doctrine of Seventh-day Adventism. Yeah. They got it from the Seventh-day Baptists. The Seventh-day Baptists had been keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath for 200 years before the Seventh-day Adventists even came into existence. And Rachel Oaks Preston was the Baptist that introduced Adventists. Joseph Bates accepted it. But the whole reason that Adventists came to embrace the Sabbath And the whole reason that Adventists are a hundred times larger than Seventh-day Baptists is because Ellen White claimed to have a vision from God showing that the fourth commandment was greater than all the others and it had a halo over it and it was the most important. And so it was that claimed vision from Ellen White that convinced Adventists then, oh yes, this is directly from God. He's showing us that the Sabbath is more important than any other commandment and all this kind of stuff. Mm. So that's the case with every single Adventist doctrine. They, they might claim that it's based on the Bible, but it's always based on the authority and visions, claimed visions, because uh, you can show pretty much now that she had no visions at all. You, you can trace where she got her materials, either from other authors, um, from sermons she heard, um, we, we can just trace where she got her stuff now. And she often made up visions as well. If she had someone who was causing her problems, she would claim a vision that God gave her that destroyed this person. And then it would later be shown that she was basing that vision on false information. <laughs> you know, so she... I have two more questions about the comparisons because they're so strongly similar to me um this is a quick yes or no are there hymns in the seventh day adventist as there is you know god bless the man joseph smith in the mormon church yeah not the same you know they Ellen White isn't held up in the same way Joseph Smith is. So he's him. not at the left hand. She's not at the left hand of God as Joseph Smith is right. to the Mormons. Right. Adventists, okay. you know, they don't come out and make those kinds of claims for Ellen White the way Mormons do for Joseph Smith. 
Okay, last question that I know Larry's got a bunch. Um, Did she have her inner police as Joseph Smith did who would go, was it the Judas? I forget what they called them, but you know, the people who would basically go rough up people if they talked bad about Joseph Smith? No, she had nothing like that. Um, You know, Joseph Smith was much more, he was a criminal. He he was, uh, like I say, a very colorful figure who was so controversial that, you know, people came and took him out of prison and strung him up and killed him. I mean, he, he was, uh, he, he was a, a very bizarre person. And he was oh. also very creative. A lot of the stuff that he claimed to get from God, he, of course, had a very creative imagination. Ellen White did not have that. She... But she was, she came across as this pure icon, and that's what makes her such an effective con artist, you know, is that she made people think she was something that she wasn't. And, and whereas Joseph Smith was more what you see is what you get, you know, the guy was just out there. And, and Ellen White was much more hidden and secretive about who she really was. I'm going to give you my opinion of Joseph Smith off mic because it's one that I think when I then my personal study of their doctrine that I've come to the conclusion of. But off mic, we'll talk about that. OK, good. OK, Larry. And and I, I should say and, and point out, Eric was actually studying to become a, a youth pastor. Yeah, I was going to go into full time youth ministry, but then I thought. Yeah, you know what? After working with teenagers all these years, I really much rather fantasize about ways to kill them. (laughs) (laughs) And anyone who's worked in youth ministry right now, boat hands up. Amen. (laughs) I was a youth pastor and a university chaplain for a good amount of time. But... Often what you see, again, Larry, if there's anything you want to say, please tell me to stop and I'll stop. All right, go ahead, go ahead. One thing we always see, what? well, let's face it, cults is what then we're now there. The Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists, would they do fit the description of a cult? Because it's always someone within a religious group who says, I have the real understanding of scripture. You should follow me, which is, again, we might lose all of our non-Christian listeners right now, which is why, you know, so many of the Jews were upset with Jesus because Mm -hmm. they thought he was trying to start a cult. It's always one leader saying, I have the real understanding. And Joseph Smith, we always mention him, but Ellen G. White fit those to a T. And again, they're usually very, was she known as being like a charismatic speaker, like able to hold a crowd in the palm of her hands like so many of the televangelists today? Yeah, not nearly to the degree that you think of cult leaders and cult figures. You know, hers was much more absolute claims for her writings, you know, let me just share a few of the quotes. Um, 
these letters I write, the testimonies I bear, I'm presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. I do not write one article in the paper expressing my own ideas. They are what God has opened before me in vision, the precious rays of light shining from the throne. Another quote, if they're not heeded, the Holy Spirit is shed away from your soul. So you can't have the Holy Spirit if you don't accept what she writes. Wow. Uh, when I send a testimony, warning, reproof, many of you declare, oh, that's just the opinion of Sister White. You have thereby insulted the Spirit of God. She then calls it blasphemy against God if she's not. There's a whole bunch of these quotes. I won't bore you with them all. They're in the book. But um, she claims this absolute authority for herself. Uh, she doesn't give people the option of, of just saying, well, that's her opinion, even though people tried to do that. She didn't give them that option. She said, no, none of this is my opinion. Nothing I write is my opinion. She never admitted that she copied it and took it from other authors and all this other stuff. She attributed it all directly to God. And then she has all these mistaken false beliefs that she's attributing to God. Um, and then, you know, in, in the light of the historical evidence, we also know that she made up all kinds of testimonies to hurt her enemies and flatter her friends. And, uh, and the evidence for that now is available. But, um, but she was a, a literal con artist in some ways. Uh, I don't know if you want me to go into that, but I, I can, I can oh, give you please. examples of yeah. how she was a, a literal con artist. Yeah. Like her very first vision that got the whole group following her at the age of 17 was stolen from a man named Joseph Turner. Uh, who had made a presentation and given out a paper to Ellen's dad, who took it home, and it was in her house. Well, her very first vision is taken right off this paper. And when uh, Joseph Turner hears about it, he, he says uh, he wasn't there when she shared this with the group. And he said, tell me what you saw in vision. And he goes, well, don't you know that's exactly what I wrote in this paper? And she said, well, I know it was in my home, but I never saw it, you know. It's, it's that kind of stuff. But, you know, two years later, um, you know, she's 19 years old. Um, her and James White, uh, they traveled together before they got married, and they were condemning marriage. No one was to be married because time was too short, and it was a sin against God. It was a lack of faith if you got married. So James and Ellen are traveling around trying to keep this small band of people believing that God is coming back any time and that probation is closed for everyone except them. And if they left the movement, then they Explain would Explain probation in that term for, you okay. know, again, because I will be putting this up on our Not Your Average Christian podcast also because it fits okay. in perfect but for the non-christian listeners could yeah. you explain that they called it the shut door the shut door doctrine which meant that when jesus did not return on october 22 1844 he was testing all the believers uh and to see if their faith would hold on but probation had closed for anyone who did not accept that message mm -hmm. so 
that was called the shut door. The door of probation is closed. No one can be saved now. Uh, okay. The only people that can be saved are the ones that believe the message. And if they fall away, then they're lost too. So, you know, they had this shut door doctrine that was so important to them. And again, it was based on Ellen White's first vision. And um, so they're going around trying to encourage these people to hold on. And both James and Ellen are as poor as church mice. They have no money at all. And people start criticizing them for traveling together when they're not married. And rumors start spreading. So even though they'd completely condemn marriage, they then get married themselves, <laughs> which is pretty, it's pretty ridiculous. It's just one more example of the hypocrisy that you find throughout her whole life. But uh, anyway, they're still desperate for money. And, and what they need more than anything else is someone who's mature, who's respected, who has money, who will embrace them and, and accept the visions. And, and the most logical candidate for that was Joseph Smith. He was an older man. He'd been a ship captain his whole life. He was very wealthy. He was an astronomist. He, he knew astronomy. He'd written a book on astronomy. Now, not the Joseph Smith, just so people... Oh, no, no, sorry, Joseph Bates. Oh, okay, okay. I misspoke. Uh, we talked about Joseph Smith so much. I so said. much, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Joseph Bates was this guy's name, and uh, he wasn't really convinced by the visions, um, and Ellen and James desperately needed him to become convinced, because they needed his money, they needed his support, they needed his influence. So they set up this small home meeting uh, that they knew he was going to be at, and Ellen goes off into this trance, this whole fake thing that she often did when she was claiming to have a vision. And, and she comes out of this trance, waving her arms like she's flying through space. And God is showing her this amazing vision of, of the galaxy, you know. And she starts describing these planets and how many moons they have and all these details from uh, astronomy. And Joseph Bates gets all excited because that's his passion. That's that's his whole life, his astronomy. So he starts shouting, oh, she's describing Saturn. And, you know, then she starts describing Jupiter. And, oh, she's describing Jupiter. And he gets all excited. And he then she claims she sees these beings on Jupiter, that God is showing her these beings. And then he really gets excited because he had no clue that there could be beings on Jupiter. And um, was this before that article came out in the paper that there were people living on the moon that Brigham yes. Young bought into? This was before or after she made that claim? There were articles that she drew on to make that claim. It, it wasn't her own creative thing. She was almost everything. Like I said, she had very little creative intelligence. She mm -hmm. had... Uh, what we would call emotional, social intelligence for manipulating people. She was very gifted at that, but she was not a creative thinker at all. She always took her stuff from other sources. And of course, she had taken this stuff from Bates's book, but she claimed she'd never seen it, that she'd never read it, she knew nothing about it. And when she finally finishes the vision, Bates is asking her, just peppering her with all these questions, and she denies ever having 
read anything or ever having been taught anything about astronomy. So he just gets all excited and, oh, this had to be God, you know. And uh, so he gets on board then and becomes the third co-founder of Seventh-day Adventism. It's Bates, Ellen White, and James White, who are the three co-founders, and Ellen is the prophet founder. But, um, you know, after that point, Bates is on board, he supports him with money, uh, and the three of them run the movement. And, um, you know, it's a very fascinating story because James and Bates came out of the Christian Connection movement, which was a really weird movement. It, it, you know, it had all kinds of false teachings, didn't believe in the Trinity, didn't believe Jesus was God, just all kinds of weird stuff, grossly legalistic. This is what they came out of. Mm. So they were always coming up with these legalistic, perfectionistic teachings, and, and Ellen would always confirm them with her visions. So they had the perfect thing going. You know, they could come up with any doctrine they wanted, and then Ellen would have some great vision showing that God had shown this. And <clears throat> so that's how the doctrines were formed. That's why uh, Seventh-day Adventists are so much larger than Seventh-day Baptists, even though Seventh-day Baptists were the ones that started the Seventh-day Sabbath. They're just a small, tiny little group, like 100,000 worldwide. But Adventists are 20 million because Ellen White made these visionary claims that the whole group bought into. And, and Seventh-day Baptism has nothing like that. So it's a very fascinating uh, <clears throat> journey to see how she linked up with Bates and her husband to basically deceive people in any direction that they wanted to. And they got caught several times, you know. And then Ellen had to have visions destroying the people that were questioning them and kicking them out of the movement. And God showed that they were demon-possessed and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, it, it's a very fascinating... That was the most vivid con that she ever did, was that con that she did on Bates. <clears throat> but, but, you know, she went through her whole life claiming to have these trances and claiming that uh, she you know, couldn't breathe, and uh, this, she acted like she had no ability to breathe when she was in vision and all this kind of stuff, so there's a lot of real interesting things about her visions that are funny to study. How long did it take you to, to put this book together? About three and a half years. I, I was working full-time the first two and a half years or so. Then the last year I, you know, concentrated on it quite uh, exclusively. I was still pastoring my church, but it's a small church, and I was able to put a lot of time into the writing of the book, especially the last year. Um, so this is how you grew up, right, as a Seventh-day Adventist? Right. What was that like for you? to to put this book together and go through all those writings um was that i don't know i just was that weird to you, you know, i'd really been doing it all my life because i was a church historian and i wrote my master's thesis on ellen white in the 1919 bible conference 
Then I wrote a doctoral dissertation in history, church history at Claremont on Ellen White specifically uh, called The Irony of Adventism, Ellen White, uh, how she put down women when she was this woman founder. And, and she wouldn't allow women to be ordained, but she, you know, was this super prophet that no one could compete with. And, um, you know, I, I uh, even wrote my PhD in psychology on Adventism and, and dealing with Ellen White's teachings with young people and all this kind of thing. And I, thankfully, I had a dad who was uh, a very bright, analytical person um, not, not naive at all. And my mom was much more of a typical Adventist, <clears throat> but my dad, um, well, he was a physical therapist. And I, I, one day when I got transferred into Adventist schools, which I hated because I was an athlete and I was doing very well in public schools. What and sport? I, it, uh, I, I played baseball, basketball, football, and tennis. Okay. So I grew up playing all four of those sports. So I loved them all. I was passionate about them all. I was doing well in them. Then I get transferred into Adventist schools, and it was a complete joke. I mean, you talk, for one thing, Ellen White taught that competition was a sin. That's why Adventists, you know, never have developed like a Brigham Young University or anything like that. But um, competitive sports were a sin. So I went to this Adventist school, Redwood Empire Junior Academy in Santa Rosa, and literally the the track was a swamp. You know, it was literally a swamp. Uh, <laughs> it was impossible to even run on the track. The baseball field was an absolute joke. It was just a field, no no diamond or anything. The gym, when I walked into the gym, the rims were hanging down at a 45-degree angle. <laughs> <laughs> the PE teacher was, was a Bible teacher who knew nothing about sports. I mean, he, it, it was just such a curse to me. And my dad loved sports, so he kind of put me in Adventist yeah. school because of my mom. And um, so I was so ticked off about that. But um, I remember, you know, in junior high getting this assignment about Ellen White, which you did all the time in Bible classes in, in the Adventist school. And this particular book was Messages to Young People. And, and of course, Ellen White had this ridiculous masturbation phobia. Masturbation was like the worst possible sin on earth. And, and there was a, a masturbation phobia in the 19th century anyway. You know, if you read the Sears and Roebuck catalogs from that period, they're selling all these chastity belts and things that parents are expected to lock their kids up at night so they can't touch themselves. And, and this is in the general Sears and Roebuck catalog. So there were a lot of weird ideas about masturbation, but Ellen White was the worst. I mean, she attributed every possible disease on earth to masturbation. It would kill you. Uh, very young, you know, it, it was just the most ridiculous stuff, which she took from John Harvey Kellogg, who was an Adventist doctor, and some of the other health reformers of her day. But anyway, here I am reading this, and my dad sees me reading it, and he says, uh, so what do you think of that? Because he knew what she had said. And I said, well, I, I don't quite know what to think. <laughs> and he said, well, don't worry about it too much. She didn't always know what she was talking about. 
which was a real radical thing for an Adventist to say at that time. Because when I was growing up, you know, there was this unbelievable devotion to Ellen White and everything she said was from God. And if you questioned it, you were guilty of blasphemy. And, you know, so thankfully I had a dad who uh, taught me to be skeptical and study and test all things and hold fast to what is good. And so, so basically to be a Berean. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, That got planted in me very young. So Ellen White wasn't able to do the damage to me that she did to a lot of my peers and friends and other people I grew up with in Adventism because they were just this brainwashing, you know, that was really harmful. Yeah. But then, you know, you had all these... Instead of fully embracing it, would you say you held it at arm's length, the teachings yeah, I mean, of the Adventists? But you went on to become a, you were saying, a pastor for, was there something that changed in your life that made yeah. you fully embrace their beliefs? Yeah, there was a lot that changed, actually. When, when I went into Adventist schools, I was very rebellious. I didn't like Adventism because it had taken my sports world away from me. I was I was a very uncouth kid at that point, a teenager who I could hardly say a sentence without profanity. And uh, so, you know, the kids in my junior high and, and the Adventist schools would have said, this guy's the last one who would ever go into the ministry. And uh, then I, when I was in 10th grade, I had a God encounter that really forced me to realize God is real, you know, and uh, I ended up going to this Adventist boarding academy called Real Indo Academy, and it was right in the middle of the baby boom, you know, they were just way overcrowded, four guys to a room that should have been two or three, and they were kicking kids out right and left. Uh, my friends were getting kicked out right and left, and it was all about Ellen White, you know, uh, if, if you had your shirt off playing tennis, uh, that was the end of the world. Um, if, if a w girl showed her toes to a guy, that was the end of the world. The, these are all like the most revolting sexual sins you can have. And, you know, all this stuff is coming out of Ellen White. And uh, so kids are getting kicked out for everything you can imagine. And I'm thinking, I'd had this encounter with God, and I'm thinking, you know, this church has to change. It, it has to wake up to, you can't treat people like this in the name of God. So I really went into the Adventist ministry in the hope of trying to change the church. Mm. And I wrote a book called Adventism for a New Generation, which was a very influential book in Adventism for many, many years. It was used as a textbook in the colleges and universities, and I spoke all over the world. Uh, relating to this book and stuff. But, you know, ultimately, the system of Adventism, just like the system of Mormonism, don't really, it doesn't really allow for change. You know, the the hierarchy, the power structure, it doesn't really allow for change. And Are you know, Seventh-day Adventists open canon or closed canon? Well, they would be closed canon in the sense of, you know, the Old Testament and New Testament are fixed books. But then they have the 66 books of Ellen White okay. and, all, and all the other books they've added to it that they call compilations. 
where they've taken her writings and and put them into new books even after her death and stuff. Okay, so those are, those are the real authority of Adventism, you know. Okay. Again, if I spoke to Christianese, main, mainline Christianity, we believe closed canon, meaning, you know, yeah, we know there were more books to the Bible written, but in, within our Bible, you know, after the book of Revelation, you can't add or take anything away. Other people, like the Mormons, if a Mormon prophet, because they still have prophets and apostles, decides something is to be added it's new doctrine it's new right. canon but right so the adventists they in a way keep adding to ellen g white's teachings or they, no they, yeah they they take her writings which she wrote ridiculous amounts in manuscripts and all kinds of other stuff so they keep making up new books to sell in their bookstores because they make a lot of money off it but they don't believe that they're equal to the canon they're not like Mormons where they have this prophetic authority that continues on in the church. That's one of the real weird things about Adventists is they just have this one monolithic prophet who stands yeah. by herself. No prophets after her. Um, no prophets before her. You know, you just have the Bible writers and then all of a sudden you have this monolithic person who's the last day prophet. But, so, um, yeah, I mean, Come on, go on. In, in practical terms, Adventists believe what they believe because of Ellen White, but they never admit that. They always claim, oh, we're the Bible and the Bible alone, and, you know, we believe in the closed canon. They would never say Ellen White's books are a continuation of the canon. But, but the reality is they believe that... Um, She's God's light that gives you the truth about how to interpret the Bible. Mm -hmm. So, in, in, that's, in that way, it's similar to Mormons, that they believe that, you know, the Book of Mormon and the, the prophets give them the ability to rightly interpret the Bible. Now, did you have the scales? Fall? When was your scales falling from your eyes moment and you decided to leave the Seventh-day Adventists? And also, how much of your personal journey is mentioned in the book? Um, I, I give little excerpts here and there. Um, you know, it's not just a classic psychobiography in that that would just be history and psychology alone. But I throw in a little bit of theology. I throw in some personal experience to try to enrich the book um, in these directions and um, you know I don't go into a lot of personal detail but for me um, I knew Adventism had problems from the very beginning mm. you know and my dad helped me understand that but um, after I was an Adventist minister I, I was becoming quite frustrated with the lack of response from the authority figures of the church. And I started attending the Vineyard in 1985. I don't know if you know who John Wimber oh, is. Very, very familiar with the Vineyard Church, yes. Yeah, he, he became my pastor. Uh, he And I actually wanted to join the Vineyard uh, because I found it so meaningful and, and such a higher quality spirituality 
than what I was experiencing in Adventism. But I had a very influential position. I was a university chaplain and pastor, and I taught in the School of Religion, Psychology, and History. So I had a lot of influence, and I had written this book, Adventism for a New Generation. So I talked to Wimber about it, you know, and he and I'd been praying about it, and he said, you know, I I'd love to have you be part of the Vineyard Movement, but I, I think God has placed you there for a reason. And the more I prayed about it, the more God convicted me, stay in Adventism until it kicks you out. Don't, okay. don't you leave it. But in, in, for all intents and purposes, I was a vineyard person from 1985 on. And I didn't leave Adventism or get kicked out. It, you know, it, it's, they, it, it's funny if, if uh, someone hates me, in the church, then the leaders will say, yeah, we kicked him out. Okay. If there are people that love me, uh, you know, which are, I have a lot of people that followed me and liked me, then they'd always say, oh, he left on his own. You know, so, okay. but it was definitely uh, a situation where um, the, the church I was pastoring in 2010, which was Celebration Center, it was a very controversial Adventist church. Um, it basically split, and the the majority of the church felt like uh, they just couldn't be Adventist anymore, and they wanted me to pastor them uh, outside of Adventism, which I agreed to do. And at that point, the church said, well, you can't be in our employ, obviously. So that's really what happened in 2010 was I started uh, pastoring Graceway Community Church, and I've been doing that over the last 10 years. And, um, you know, it's been much more freeing and just a much more enjoyable experience because pastoring in Adventism was always very oppressive. You know, there, it was very burdensome with the hierarchy and the attacks and the legalism and there, there was always so much garbage going on and politics going on that it was never really a, a fun, enjoyable experience the way I found the vineyard and the way I've found my pastoring over the last 10 years. Uh, as, 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 a, an author, as a writer, I was going to say as an author, but as a writer, um, what, what made you decide um, other than that there wasn't a psychobiography, what made you want to put a book together on Ellen White? One of the reasons I'd already written, uh, as I say, a master's thesis, a couple doctoral dissertations, and I'd also written two uh, more popular books called The Prophetic Rift 1 and 2. And um, so I felt like, okay, this new information is really forcing me to go beyond what I've written before. And uh, I want to include everything in this book, including the stuff that's come to light that no one knew before. So, you know, I and, and I wrote the other books when I was still at least under the fold of Adventism. So, you know, I couldn't be as outright overt about some of the criticisms and stuff my books were actually pretty critical of her. If you read the prophetic rift one and two, oh. you know, they, they are pretty critical of her, 
but nothing compared to the psychobiography because that has everything in it. And, um, you know, I, I have no reason to try to appease any, uh, church bureaucrats or anything. I'm, I'm just being a hundred percent. This is what it is, you know, take it or leave it. <laughs> being, being, a uh, being, uh, a therapist, um, did, did it surprise does in did any of your research surprise you at all about yeah I, I would and, say I, I was really surprised to find out she was an alcoholic and, and she would you know she was this huge uh, prohibitionist who that was the most overt she ever was in terms of going to other churches because she taught it was a sin to go to any non-adventist church and you know, she was just completely critical of anyone who wasn't an Adventist. But when she was pushing for prohibition, she would go and speak in other churches. And this was like her big thing, you know, prohibition. And of course, she'd written that any drop of alcohol is the worst kind of sin you can commit, you know. So she just uh, had this unbelievable condemnation of anything to do with alcohol in any way, shape or form. And the funny thing was, um, when she became addicted to making this homemade wine, which she made grape wine, vinegar wine, a lot of different forms of wine that she became addicted to. And it wasn't very controlled back then. So you could have very high levels of alcohol in these wines that were homemade. And um, so she's, she's became addicted to this vinegar wine and uh, she wouldn't admit you know that she was addicted to alcohol uh, and she claimed she became addicted to vinegar in her diaries well vinegar is not addicting so <laughs> it was the vinegar wine it was the alcohol that she put in the vinegar but she became so addicted that she went through alcohol withdrawals and, and she herself said I was sure I was going to die. I was so addicted. And, um, you know, there's just a whole bunch of things that I, I would say the other thing in, in this last book that I never got into nearly as much was her revolting exploitation of money, of her own church members to make money off them, to become extremely wealthy. She, she gives the impression, and Adventists always give the impression, that she was just this poor, humble woman, and she lived it a very uh, humble, you know, simple lifestyle, which is anything but the truth. She made millions of dollars. She insisted on the highest royalty she could possibly get from her book. Um, it, it, she bought all these homes with her husband but until he died. Um, they... She had the most extravagant, elegant clothing. They went to all these spas, health spas all over the world, traveled all over the world, lived a very elegant life in terms of jewelry, which she totally condemned. All the stuff she condemned, she was doing, eating meat, um, eating unclean meats. Adventists had this big thing about unclean meats. She was wolfing down the unclean meats behind barriers where no one... And, and the friends who knew her real well saw her eating oysters and all these unclean meats <laughs> she condemned. And so, you know, she just had this 
the obvious truth was that she knew she wasn't getting any of this stuff from God. That's why she didn't care about doing it herself. Yeah. And, and what she actually even believed about God, I don't know, because she's attributing so much false, evil stuff to God that, you know, I don't think I'd want to be here in the judgment. I, I don't know how that's going to turn out. But when you attribute the kind of stuff to God that she did her whole lifetime, that's bad news, you know. And to me, that's the worst sin you can commit yeah. is making God evil making God out to be an evil being and, you know, someone who hates children and all this kind of stuff. That, that's just sad. It's completely and, contrary to what you see Jesus teaching and saying. You know, he right. scolded the uh, disciples for not letting the children come to him. Right, absolutely. You can't get more plain than that. It's in red. Yes. And if it's in red, you know, it's pretty much... Yeah, you can. Yeah, the, when I compare Jesus to Ellen White, there's no comparison. What has some of the reaction been about your book from friends and that, uh, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I guess when you think about it, you, like right now in terms of even on, on television, they have, you know, where it's the Mennonites and they finally discover and, and get out on their own and they they discover this whole world that was taught. They, they were right. taught when they grew up. Right. They were growing up that it was an evil world. If you it's almost like Dracula. If you walk out into the sun, you're going to burn yourself. You're going to die. Right. And then Absolutely. they get out in the real world and none of that. If is true you know right. um so what what has the reaction been from from people uh who well who were your friends i mean ha have you made anybody look at you go i can't believe you you've done something like this not yet i'm sure it will be coming you know the book's only been in the bookstores and on amazon here the last few weeks so it's it's really brand new and we're just getting the word out uh so there's a lot of people that know me well that don't even know that I've written the book. Wow. Uh, I don't tell everyone I see that I wrote this book. But uh, <laughs> but I did have uh, a committee of 21 people, church historians, scholars, psychiatrists, psychologists, all read the book uh, and give me feedback before I published it, including the top historians in Adventism who know the most about Ellen White and the church. So I, I gave them all the opportunity to read it. And to my amazement, even the white estate person who had been, I, I won't say he's the one that released the documents. I have my <laughs> suspicions that it could have been. But, um, you know, I, I said, if you find anything in here, you know, that you question the accuracy of or you don't think it's historically uh valid um let me know and i didn't get one bit of feedback that there was anything historically inaccurate or you know that was uh needed to be changed uh, i got very good feedback from my reading committee of the 21 scholars and uh, doctors etc and uh and then all the people i've had read it so far 
have been very, very positive. You know, I, I have a few relatives that are conservative Adventists that I've sent the book to. So <laughs> I'll be very interested to hear what, what they're going to say. But, um, you know, I, I don't try to be dogmatic in the book. I, I just say this is the evidence. Yeah. This is the historical documentation. This is, these are the psychological implications. You judge for yourself. You tell me what you think. What would you do with this evidence if, if you had it? You know, so that's how I, 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 my attitude is always test all things and hold fast to what is good. Right, you know, right, so. right, right, right. So it's, so it's not uh, as someone would think just on passing. It, it's not as sensational. It's just here it is. Here's, here's, what, here's what the research shows. Yeah. You make of it I, what you want. I don't know if you know who Walter Ray is, but he wrote a book called The White Lie um, quite a few years ago, back in the 80s. And uh, he had been an Adventist minister who was just totally devoted to Ellen White and preached Ellen White, and his whole life had been promoting Ellen White. Gosh. And then he found out about her plagiarism and copying, and, and he was so angry yeah. that he wrote this book, The White Lie, documenting her plagiarism. And he was just vicious, you know, he was, wow. he was very uh, yeah. sarcastic and she, you know, calling her every name in the book and all this kind of stuff, um, which my book is nothing like that because I don't come out of that background of, right. I never felt like, I always felt like the things that I was blessed by by Ellen White were usually just because she copied from good people. <laughs> You know, yeah. she copied from a lot of good people. Yeah. If, if you stop and think, if you could just take any book out there in the market today and take whatever you want from it and put your name on it, you know, you could come up with some pretty good stuff. Yeah. And she learned, she learned to do that more and more as she got older in her life because she got burned so many times by taking things from Joseph Bates and her husband that people just went crazy about, you know, the shut door and the seven-year theory that Christ was going to come back in 1851 and all kinds of crazy stuff that was ridiculous. So she learned to go to well-known authors, and, and she taught that Adventists were not to read any book that wasn't Adventist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, you know why? So they're not familiar yeah. with all these books she has in her library from other authors that aren't Adventists that she's copying from. A few of them were, you know, and when they did bring it up, she had a vision showing they were <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. But <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, I mean, it would, I, it, it, it would, if you devote your life, and and I, I guess that's, you know, you grew up with that skepticism and that, you know, looking as opposed to um, somebody growing up and just massively devoted and then all of a sudden it's like your whole world is shattered right and that and i'm no therapist <laughs> but you but that but that is is how the really bad feelings i'm yeah. sure you know the there, resentment and yeah. everything else that underlies a lot of that in adventism you know I, i've had groups of adventists sit down and I had to give up my job when I became an Adventist. I had to take off my wedding ring. I had to take off all wow. my jewelry. 
had to give up this and that and the other thing. And then I all find out in my old age that it was all a fraud, you know. Yeah. And so the anger of that, it, you know, I could have let that happen to me with sports. Yeah. I really wanted to be a professional athlete. That's that's what my whole life and soul and heart was about when I was a teenager. And I had all that taken away from me because of Ellen White. So I could have let that destroy my life. And I did have a lot of anger when I came into the Adventist church. And I think God just had mercy on me. Mm. And he encountered me and said, hey, I've got something for you to do in this movement and in my kingdom that will be better than sports could have ever been for you. That's right. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So I don't have that anger or resentment. I, I don't have any resentment against Adventism. You know, it gave me the opportunity to get all these degrees and teach young people for so many years. And um, it, uh, my experience in Adventism was generally positive, even though it was also coupled with frustration just because yeah. of the nature of the system and a yeah. lot of the garbage that goes with that. But but I always felt like I was doing good, helping people move to a better place than what Adventism could offer them. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, you know, talking to you, I, I really never knew really what, what seven-day Adventists were. And I'm sure just from listening to you and Eric have, your, have a conversation <laughs> about it, I mean, it's really just scratching the surface. Yeah. Um, uh, what, before we wrap up, is there, did any of this research that you've done provide any other idea for another book or, or yeah. are you done with? with no, I'm actually working on two other books that were inspired from writing this book. Mm -hmm. uh, one I'm working with a co-author with who went through incredible religious abuse through her life and she's now part of our church and uh, works with me on the staff and uh, we're calling it harnessing god the nature of religious abuse Ooh. and basically what she's going to do is talk out of her own personal story every other chapter and then i'm going to talk about the theological psychological implications of religious abuse and and how evil it is and you know we've seen what what happened with the catholic church with all these priests it, it's yeah. a very popular topic today because of the religious abuse that's out there yeah. so that's one book uh, that we're working on harnessing god the nature of religious abuse and the other one that i'm i've outlined and i'm working on is the 10 greatest con artists of all time and, <laughs> I honestly believe Ellen White's right there at the very top of that list because, you know, we, we think of, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you ever watched the movie Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio, but, you know, everyone thinks of Frank Abigdale or Charles Ponzi or uh, Bernie Madoff or even Joseph Smith, these, these great con artists, but they all ultimately got caught. You know, Ellen White never got caught. That's the amazing thing. There were people that tried to catch her, but she destroyed them. And, and she was able to go through her whole life. And now, more than 100 years after her life, as this great religious icon, when in many ways she was the most 
shrewd and and effective con artist the world's ever seen. You know, it, it's just amazing how she fooled people into believing she was something that she wasn't, and which is kind of the essence of a con artist. And um, so wow. I'm, I, I, I'm going to do ten psychobiographies on the ten greatest uh, con artists wow. of all time. Well, I have a feeling you'll be back on our show pretty well, quick. Most definitely, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I tell you what, um, Steve, you you're absolutely amazing um and and you are living proof that no matter how you grew up there's always something the door will open i think because you know i think you kind of mentioned it or it felt you know like god had a different calling for you and he put you in these situations to to say hey look you just got to trust me Cause you're mm-hmm. going to, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some really great stuff about and, and to speak the truth about, because yeah. ultimately I think, you know, that's, that's, that's what you're doing is you're speaking the truth. And yeah. it's like the, it's like the Bible says, the truth will set you free. So you know, those are the last words of my book. The truth will set you free as Jesus. Right. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, that's so uh, And I know you guys are into movies, and I honestly believe this book would make the most fascinating two-hour movie. You know, I I love the movie Catch Me If You Can, Um, and and I think this book would make an amazing movie. It'd just be two hours of amazing stuff, because when you just take the highlights of what she did and how she did it and all the things that were involved, uh, I, I think it would just be fascinating film. Well, Steve, we're going to talk to you on off the mic because you do know we're making a horror film. And when you make horror films, those are the <laughs> hardest films to make. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, but no, no. It's her own horror film. Yeah. 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 Yeah.